Okay, we're gonna get started. One my one of my goals for tonight, or my plan for tonight, it's not really a goal, it's a plan, um, is we have a lot of text to cover. So there's gonna be do a lot of summing, I'm gonna do a lot of summing up. So it's not gonna be quite like it normally is line by line in order to try to cover all of our text. So I feel like, you know, I hope I don't lose you guys um, when I jump from text to text. I'll try to remember to say it, but um, there is a possibility that I will forget. <laughs> so let's begin our time with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you um, for your goodness to us. We thank you. Each week I feel like I say the same thing, thanking you for your word. It is so good to be able to sit at your feet in your word, learning about you, who you are, because your word reflects the, your character, learning about what it is like to follow you and to walk according to your ways. And Lord, so we thank you for your goodness to us and giving us your word. Father, I ask for um, you to watch over our time together. Um, I pray for your spirit to work in me and in the women in this room. I ask that you would help my mind to be calm and to be clear and that I would speak faithfully. I ask that each one of us, our hearts, would be submitted to you and to your spirit, that we would um, be humble and be willing to just receive your word as it is. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are receptive and understanding. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to start our time in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. And the theme for today is holiness, is being holy to the Lord. As you read through your text today, you would have noticed there was a lot of things that were being set apart holy to the Lord. And so our theme today is holy to the Lord. Now, throughout all of Scripture, we hear the voice of the Lord calling us to holiness. He says in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, so it's both Testaments, be holy, for I am holy. But what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that the Lord is holy? And then what does it mean when he calls us to be holy? God's holiness is what separates him from all other beings, from everything in his creation. It makes him separate and distinct from everything else. His holiness is his perfection, his sinless purity. It's his transcendence. He transcends all of his creation. God's holiness embodies the mystery of his awesomeness and causes us to gaze in wonder at him as we begin to comprehend just a little bit, just a little piece of his majesty. So we, as creatures, do not share that kind of holiness with God. That is his transcendence. We do not share in that. So if we cannot share in God's holiness, then what does it mean when he calls us to be holy like he is holy? Well, for us, to be holy in some ways is similar in that it is to be separate, to be set apart from everything else, for something else, for God's purposes. But it also carries with it the idea of godliness or to be like God in moral purity. Now, God is the source of holiness. He's the source of it. And we who belong to him get our source of holiness from him. We get it from him, from being in his presence, and what we do is we reflect his holiness in our world. So there's a sense, as we look at the scriptures, that there's two parts to, to holiness. There's positional holiness. You're positionally holy before God. And then there's progressive holiness. It's that holiness that we grow in as we grow closer in our relationship with God, as we read and study his word as we're with the fellowship of believers and we're in the presence of God, we begin to grow degree by degree by degree in holiness. So that's positional holiness and progressive holiness. And those are the two things I want us to keep in our minds as we look at the text tonight. 
So the first thing we're going to look at and pay attention to is positional holiness, and we're going to find that in chapter 14, verse 1. Read it. I'm going to begin reading verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So who is he talking to? Who are the sons of the Lord your God? It's the people of Israel. Those whom God had chosen out of all the peoples on the planet. Now, I don't know what the population was at that time, but there was probably a lot of people on the planet. And out of all of those people, God chose Abraham and his offspring to be his special people, his special possession, his sons, he calls them, his treasured possession. So they are sons, they are holy, they are treasured already. They are positionally holy because the Lord had separated them out from all the peoples in the land to belong just to him. That's what we're talking about when we talk about positional holiness. It's already done based upon God's sovereign calling and God's sovereign choice on those people. He brought them out of Egypt, redeeming them out into the wilderness to worship at his mountain, to enter into covenant with them. And because of all of this activity that God has done, these people are positionally holy. And now, through the word of God, through the commands of God, through the law of God, God is leading his holy people and teaching them how to live into the holiness that they already are. They are already holy. And so now he's saying, these are commands. These are how you are to live in light of who you are that they might become who they already are, a holy people, progressively, slowly, degree by degree, in their cultural context. This is what God is doing to, for Israel in his law. He is teaching them. He is discipling them. He is training them. He is raising them, just like a good father does to his children. But what about us today? Is it the same for us today? Does any of this matter to us today? Well, I would contend it absolutely does matter for us today. We are the same. We are in the same position as Israel. Remember a few weeks ago how we talked about um, the Old Testament being like a blueprint pointing us to the reality, to the building. Well, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, are pointing us to the people of God that is the, called the church. They're the Old Testament believers. We are the New Testament believers. But the principle is still the same. We, too, are a people holy unto God, Scripture teaches us. Um, we talk about this almost every week, and I think it's important for us to talk about repeatedly because I think sometimes we forget. But almost every week we talk about the fact that we are redeemed people. Um, John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Just like Israel was sons of God, so is a New Testament believer the son of God. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you, speaking of the believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Saying almost the same exact words as Moses said in Deuteronomy, referring to the church, to the people of God. So just like in the Old Testament, we can look at our lives and ourselves as redeemed people who have trusted in Christ as sons, as Israel, in a sense, as people who are holy. God has redeemed us out of all the people on the planet, 7 billion or whatever the number is now, out of all the people on the planet, God is calling a people to himself, and we get to be a part of that. And as he's called us out from amongst the peoples, 
He separated us out and we are positionally holy. And his word for us is training us to live progressively holy lives. 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives a spirit to you. It is God's will for his people then and now to become progressively holy through obedience to his word. So what we're going to learn as we look into the scriptures about the Lord who is holy himself, and we see his holiness reflected in his word, as we look at his law that leads his people to progressive holiness, there is not a single area of life that the Lord ignores, is there? Not a single area. He is the God of details. He's detail-oriented. He's not just concerned about the big picture things, about the big things, but he cares about even the very little things. The fatherliness of the Father in his law is beautiful to behold as he seeks to teach his own children what it means to live fully into their identity as sons and treasured possessions. From foods to grieving, how do we grieve? To worship practices, to hygiene, to sex, to marriage, to work, to justice. You name it, it's in there. And he is going to teach it to us. So as we go through the text, um, Let's keep in mind, my plan, again, for tonight is to try my best to teach you what it meant to them in their context and then try to bring it forward to our context so we would know how to live accordingly. But let's first look at, again, verse 1 to see what God says about the way his people are, con are to conduct him themselves in the matter of grieving. He says in verse 1, again, you, you are the sons of the Lord your God, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Now that sounds so strange to us. It's not, a, it's not a common practice in our cultural context that when people are grieving for the dead, they're starting to cut themselves and shaving their head in strange ways. But in that cultural context, that was the normal practice for the way the people in the land would have grieved for the death of their loved ones. And so God is saying, you are my people. You are a people called to me. And you're not going to be like the people of this land. Even in the way that you grieve, you are not going to grieve like they do. Do not conduct yourself in the same way as they do. And we've seen this as we've looked at how God wants to be worshipped. He does not want his people to worship him in the ways that the people of that land worship. They're to be distinct and different so that God would be glorified in that land. They could be salt. They could be light in the darkness of the land. So he says, do not do these things like they do in the land. Well, that was 4,000 years ago. And yet today, under the new covenant, God still says the same thing. Does he not tell us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve differently? He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So all the way forward in today's cultural context, the when we grieve as believers, we don't grieve like the world around us grieves. We don't grieve without hope. We grieve knowing that because Jesus died and was buried and raised again, that we too will be raised again in the new resurrection life. So that changes how we, how we navigate grief in our cultural context. And that is going to stand out as distinct from the rest of the world. So even in the way we grieve, we will grieve distinctly from our culture around us. So let's get back to Israel. 
God is calling his holy people to live into what they already are, reflecting his holiness in their cultural context. And he does this. We see God calling his people in our text today by teaching them about clean and unclean foods or holy foods. He's teaching them about the, the, what to do with their year, yield, their bounty, holy yield. He's talking to them about the holy year, the Sabbath year that they're going to be there they're to celebrate. Um, he's talking to them about festivals, holy festivals that they're going to be celebrating. And all of these things, as God is teaching his people, he's revealing himself to them, but he's teaching them what it means to be a holy, distinct child of God. So let's take a look at first the foods. Verse 3 says this, you shall not eat any abomination. And then it goes on, and we listed through a whole bunch of foods. There were, you could eat meat that parts the hoof and chews the cud, but don't eat the meat that parts the hoof but doesn't chew the cud, or chews the cud but doesn't part the hoof. Did you guys catch all that? <laughs> you can eat fish with fins and scales, but don't eat the fish with no fins and scales. I don't like to eat any kind of fish, fins or finless. I don't know. You can eat the clean birds, but don't eat the birds of prey. You can not eat winged insects. Do not eat winged insects. Although, if you jump into Leviticus, you will learn that you are allowed to eat locust, grasshopper, and crickets. Aren't you excited about that? Then if you drop down into verse 21, it says, You shall not eat anything that died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you shall sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I know you can't wait for me to get to that. But first of all, like if an animal dies naturally, they're not to eat it because there was no guarantee of the process of draining the blood appropriately. Remember how they were told over and over again, and even in our text today, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood. They were to drain the blood out of the animals before they ate them. And so if an animal were to die on the side of the road, there was no guarantee that that would be done appropriately. So it was still fine for a foreigner to eat, but not for the people of God. They were to be distinct. Now, a couple of things are going on in the, the clean and the unclean food list that I want us to understand. What is God doing? Why is God separating out foods? And what is he teaching his people? Well, I think he is teaching his people that there's a distinction between clean and unclean. And I think overall, we need to understand that we are unclean as we stand before a clean and holy God. And the teaching of clean and uncleanness helps us to understand that we need to be cleansed. They needed to be cleansed. So he's teaching them that truth, that principle, but there's also um, a protection for his people. Some of the animals on this list are just not edible. They're going to make you sick. They're not good for you. I mean, we don't eat them today, right? We have some unclean animals on our list. Like, I don't know when the last time you had baked vulture for dinner, but I haven't ever had it. We don't eat those things because they're dirty. They're like gross. They eat dead things. And so there's just some practical protections for his people, which is beautiful that God would do that for him, for them. But then there's also the, the fact that they were to be distinct from the people in the land. Many of the animals on this list would have been revered by the people in their pagan worship. And so some of those animals, God said, no, I don't want you to look like them. I want you to be separate from them. I don't want you to eat that because it's revered and held in high esteem or a part of the worship of idols. And so he separated them out in a way that they would not eat anything that was an abomination to the Lord. So for protection and for distinction. But what do we do with that today? How do we think about foods today? Does this law apply to us today in the same way? Do we need to live by the dietary laws? And I know that a lot of people do wrestle with this. 
They're wondering, can I eat pork? What do I do? You know, the different things. Well, we look, when we have these questions, one of the things that we need to do is we look to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? Does the New Testament carry these laws in, um, over from the Old Testament into the New? So we look to the New Testament and we look to see what the New Testament writers have to say. And Jesus actually speaks on the subject of foods himself. In Mark 7, we're given an account of Jesus speaking um, to a crowd and he He's talking to them about things that would defile a person. And he says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and then is expelled. Thus, we're told, he declared all foods clean. So Jesus himself teaches the principle that it's not the foods that we eat that we make that make us unclean. It's not the things that we touch. It's our hearts. And I think that's what's underneath this law is to teach them about clean and unclean and, and the fact that we needed to be cleansed. And Jesus teaches us that he's the one that washes us clean. And so he himself declared foods to be clean. Now, this was a struggle for his disciples and for the people of that day because for thousands of years they lived under the law that they could not eat certain foods. And so Peter, we see Peter in Acts chapter 10, who's hungry. He's on the rooftop and he's praying to the Lord and he's starving. And the Lord God gives him a vision to tell him that he can eat food and the foods that are on the unclean list. And he's like, no, can't do it, can't do it. So for three times we are told in this text that God said to him, the voice came to him a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So what God has made clean, he has made these foods clean. Do not call it common. Not only has God made those foods clean, there's a greater principle that he was teaching Peter at that time because there were people who were considered unclean to Israel. The Gentiles were unclean. And through the cross and through the gospel, Jesus opened the door for the Gentiles to come in, and they now could be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So the, the idea of the clean and the unclean, Jesus teaches us in the New Testament that we need to be washed clean not because of the way we eat our foods, but through him and through his salvation and through his blood. Paul also said this in regards to the debate in the church about food. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 9, food will not commend us to God. Hallelujah. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours, the right to eat, or any rights that we have does not somehow become a stumbling block to others. And we begin to see that idea that what we do matters because of how it's going to affect those in our midst, other people. So it's not about the food that you eat. So go ahead, eat the pork, eat the hoagie. It's good. The word of God says it. No food and no special diet that you are on is going to make you better before God. It's not going to commend you to God. The only thing that commends us to God, the only thing that makes us clean is Jesus. He is the cleansing agent and makes us clean. So let's continue on. All right, we are looking at the tithes. We are looking at verse 22, and we're talking about tithes. So um, before we get into the text, a tithe literally means one-tenth. just means a tenth of whatever you bring in. So for Israel, there were three tithes. And the first one that I'm going to just tell you about is not found in our text today. But you can find it in um, Leviticus 27 through 27.30 and Numbers 18.21 through 24. And this is called the Levitical tithe. This was 10% of all the proceeds that was given in support of the temple and in support of the Levites who had no inheritance of their own. So that first tithe was a holy tithe. It was given to support the people who were working on behalf of the Israelites, teaching them the word. They were working in the tabernacle or in the temple. They were making sacrifices and interceding for the people. And this was their whole life. 
They had no inheritance of land, no ability to produce. This was their livelihood. And God had said that they don't get an inheritance because I myself am their inheritance. God is their inheritance. And we see embedded within the law God's protection and care for his people, his tribe of Levites that are working and serving the people on behalf of God. So that was the first tithe. And I want to make a distinction between the tithe and a free will offering. The tithe, tithe was legally required by the law, but the law also told them to give of their own free will in abund according to the abundance that the Lord had given them. So there's a distinction between these two things. So that was the first tithe, the Levitical tithe. Now let's look at our text in chapter 14, verse 22. Um, the, this first tithe, the second tithe, is called the tithe of feasts. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you might learn to fear the Lord your God. So a second 10% of their income was to be set apart for a party. Right? What does it say? Take that tithe and you shall eat it. You shall eat the tithe of grain, of your wine, of your oil, of the firstborn of your flocks. And we're going to be looking at the firstborn of the flocks in just a few minutes. Before the Lord. This is the tithe that was set apart for those three pilgrimage festivals that they travel to the place where the Lord puts his name. Those three festivals that we're going to look about, talk about in a few minutes. Where they would come and go into the presence of God and remember and celebrate God's work for them and God's blessing on their life. So I love that this, this picture of embedded within the law of God is this command to set aside 10% of your money to have a week-long party three times a year. I want to say this over and over again because I need it to get into my head. God is not a stingy God. He is a God that is generous, and he is God that wants to see the joy of his people overflow out of their lives. He is a generous and good job, God. He is not out there to steal our joy as Satan would have us believe about him. He is not out there to steal it. Rather, he is the source of our joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We will never find the joy and the pleasure in this world, in the parties that this world is trying to offer us, that we will find in the presence of the Lord our God, because in his presence is joy, fullness of joy, and pleasures forevermore. Let's pick our, up our verse, um, pick up in verse 28, the third tithe. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So that third tithe is the tithe that was to be for the poor. It was once again another 10%, but spread out over three years. And every third year, then they would take that savings, that tithe, and it would be given for the Levites, again in support of them, for the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner. Again, look with me at the heart of God. And as we go through the rest of the passage today and into the weeks to come, as we look at the individual stipulations of the law, we are going to just be seeing God's heart for the, the down and out, for the poor, for those within the people of Israel who, who don't have what everybody else has. He's concerned for them. And what he wants to do is he wants to teach his people, his sons, to reflect his heart of generosity that they might see them too, that they might reach out and touch the lives of the poor. Instead of being selfish and hoarding, which is our natural instinct, God is teaching 
his children to see and to be generous with their monies. So, how are we to think about the tithes today? Are we too required to follow the law and give 23%? Did you notice that? It's not 10%, it's 23% of their income, of our income to the church? Well, Jesus, as you might imagine, as we go into the New Testament, has taken this law and he's getting to the heart of the generosity that is embedded within this law. He deepens it and broadens it. Now, I don't think there is anybody that you could point to in all of Scripture and in all of the world who is more generous than Jesus himself. His very life is one of generosity. He embodies generosity. He left the riches of heaven and became poor. He had no place to lay his head at times. He became poor so that the poor in spirit could be rich. He gave his very life on the cross that we could be rich in spiritual blessings. So as people who have been who have benefited from the generosity of Jesus himself, we are to be distinct. We are to be a people who are known for our generosity. Not under compulsion of the law, not because there's a commandment that says, you shall give this much money and how to do that, but of our own free will because of how God has touched us and God has blessed us. The question for us as New Testament believers is not how much do I have to give, but rather, how much can I give? How much can I give? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let me tell you something, ladies. You cannot out-give God. You can try, and I would challenge you to try it, but you cannot out-give the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You cannot out-give him. The, the passage goes on and says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, in his heart, giving from your heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because you have to, I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to give because I have to, but freely out of the abundance of your heart, let your heart overflow in generosity for God loves a cheerful giver. As a holy people, we are called to do much more than tithe. We are called to be a reflection of God's generosity to us in the way that we live, live our lives. To be holy is to be generous. He continues with that theme of generosity in Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. As we look at the Sabbath year, that is really what's underneath the heart of the Sabbath year. Let's begin looking at um, Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother. Notice this, this release is for the people of Israel. There's a distinction made in this that it's for the brother, his fellow Israelites. If they have loaned to their fellow Israelites in the seventh year, they are to release that debt. Because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner or somebody who was traveling by and trading, you may exact it. But whatever is yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. We're going to stop there. So there's every seven years, there was to be this Sabbath year, a sabbatical year. And there were two elements, a couple elements to that Sabbath year. The first thing was the land was to be rested. They were to rest the land. They were not to grow crops. They were not to prune the crops. They were not to till the soil. They were to allow the land to rest. And whatever the land naturally would produce, they were allowed to eat that. So what was, what was God teaching them in that? I mean, you think about what that would have been like. If that was your whole livelihood was farming, agriculture, 
and to, say, to not grow any crops for that year? Oh boy, I'm going to have to trust God, am I not? And that's a scary thing to be, to do. Trusting God to provide for us. We struggle with that. They struggled with that, but that was what God was calling them to do so that they would learn to depend on God. That's the, some of it, what um, we learn about Sabbath. In the Sabbath day of the week was a sense in which we are not God, right? We cease our labors because we are not God and we find rest in him. Well, now there's this year, and um, I'm not sure if you realize this, but I think it's every seventh Sabbath year, at the end of the seven, seven Sabbath years, there was the big Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. So every 49, 50 years, there was the year of Jubilee, which had the same exact thing. So there was the, the resting of the land, and then there was the release of debt. They were to release the debt of those who were their fellow Israelites. And they would be lo loaning um, to their fellow Israelites because sometimes things were not evenly distributed. People needed money for food. They couldn't pay. They, they needed to borrow money in order to eat or in order to be clothed. And so they would loan to one another. And so on that year, they were to release all of those debts. And then it was also the release of slaves. Again, this isn't slavery like we think of in the 1800s, 1700s, all of that. This is when a person would sell themselves into indentured service because of a debt that they could not pay. So if I borrowed money from you and I could not pay it off, I would put myself in your service until I could pay that debt off. And so God put boundaries on that. Every six years, that debt was fulfilled. It was to be, they were to be set free, unless, of course, they loved their master. And so God made provision for them to stay within the household of that master if they wanted to. But even in the release of that slave, they were to be generous. There was generosity that was supposed to be given to those who were being released. All the way through this, all the way through this law, we are seeing God working and teaching his people what it means to be holy, to trust in him. You have to trust in God in order to be generous. You have to trust and believe that God is going to be your provider. God ultimately is going to take care of you in order for you to be generous. But he's also teaching them that generosity is to come from the heart. Like, I know that the tithe was in the law, but God was still seeking to get to the heart of his people. Look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Again, can you outgive God? Can you outgive God? For there will never cease to be poor in the land. He said there should not be poor in the land early, but now he says there never is going to cease to be poor in the land. This is what it's like to live in a fallen world. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This generosity is to be a generosity that comes from their heart, that they weren't to harden their heart to their brothers, but rather open their hearts, open their hands, and give as they see the need. Now, I want to tell you some bad news, that there is no record in the history of Israel that they actually did this, that they ever honored the sabbatical year. Never. Um, we learn that because of that, they were sent into exile by God. Listen to the words of 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21. Or actually 20, I'm going to start in 20. He says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, 
And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, speaking of the Israelites. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's a sobering look, is it not? God will have his way with us. And because they did not obey the word of the Lord and they did not trust him, God still gave the land Sabbath. But they went into exile. And this just made me think I was talking to somebody this morning about Sabbathing and resting and trusting in God. And it reminded me a little bit of myself. I struggle to Sabbath. I struggle to stop, to cease my labors and to rest. And what happens when I don't do that? I push myself, I push myself, I push myself, I get sick, and then I can't do anything for weeks. Something happens, I go wrong. And it's almost like the Lord is making me Sabbath, right? He's giving me. He's like, all right, you're not going to take it on your own. I'm going to give you a Sabbath. And it may come through some pain. And that's what he does. But this is discipline from the Lord who loves us and who once is inviting us into trusting in him. Now, the Lord was not done with Israel. Yes, he took them into exile. Yes, the land was given Sabbath. But he was not finished with them. Because when Jesus opened up his public ministry, he did so by saying these words from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Sabbath rest. Jesus himself is the year of Sabbath. In him, the poor become rich. In him, eyes that are blind are able to see him and salvation. He has proclaimed liberty to the captives and the oppressed. He has set us free from our debt of sin, from our slavery to, to sin. This is what Paul is talking about in Colossians when he told, tells us that he has canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. So for us today, we look at Jesus and we see freedom. We see rest. We see release from debt. He is the fulfillment of this year, of this Sabbath year. And yet underneath that law, underneath the command for them to, to rest the land and to be generous to the poor, was the invitation into trust, right? Trust and generosity. And for us, that's still the same. Jesus continued to teach that to us as he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. He's inviting us through his words to not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Live a life that is generous towards others, investing in his kingdom, and you store up treasure in heaven. But in order to be generous, you must trust in God for his provision. You know these verses I'm about to read to you. They're very familiar. But think of what Jesus is saying in light of what we're learning about what's underneath this Sabbath year of trust. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, do, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Remember these words? What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Same principle that Jesus is driving at. In the law, God was telling them, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear or what you will drink. 
I will care for you. I'm your good father. My provision is all over this law for you. Are you not more valuable to me than the birds? And Jesus comes along all those thousands of years later with the words of Deuteronomy solidly in his heart and begins to teach the same message, inviting us to not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Trust in him and be generous. Finally, we're going to look at the last portion of our text today, the celebrations, the holy celebrations that God calls his people to. He is calling his people to holiness through these celebrations. And these celebrations begin with some preparations. So in chapter 15, um, we're going to look at verse 19. We're going to pick up in verse 19. So their preparations for these celebrations, we saw it already about the firstborn males. Verse 19 says, All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. So the firstborn males without blemish were to be set aside. They were Their whole purpose in being born was for the purpose of being eaten before the presence of the Lord at these festivals. They had, to have, they had to be perfect. And we know as New Testament believers that this is pointing to the ultimate firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be for us a feast. He would be our feast that we would partake of in salvation. So they were to set aside these firstborn males, animals, that were unblemished, and they were to take them and they were to be, eat them before the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 23, we see that familiar refrain, only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. And we talked about that a lot a couple weeks ago. We've seen this repeatedly. Don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. And I was going to just brush over this because we've already talked about it, but I was thinking about it in the middle of church yesterday, and, it, and I wanted to bring to your attention something about the blood. We talked about how the blood represents life, and life is in the blood, and we've seen that over and over. But Jesus says something about the blood. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Imagine how those words landed on the words of a people who had their entire lives been told, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood. The blood is to be poured out. The blood is to be poured out as an offering. And now Jesus comes on the scene and says, unless you drink my blood, you have no life. You will have no life. Those are shocking words. Shocking words. What is he saying to them? He's saying, one, I am the author of life. Life comes from me. And two, your life is contingent on your relationship with me. My blood is being shed for your life. Eat it. Drink it. Not literally. We're not literally eating and drinking his blood. But we eat at his table and we drink of his blood when we gather together as, as believers, remembering the sacrifice in communion. We're tangibly, in some way, spiritually taking in and receiving from Jesus the life that he has given us. He is making us holy as we eat and drink from his word and from, from in the community of believers. These words are shocking words. And I think as we look at the Old Testament and we see, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood, don't drink the blood, those don't drink the bloods are pointing us to the one with whom we would finally be able to drink from and receive life. It's a beautiful picture. 
All right, let's move on to the feast. The first feast that we talk about is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So with the money that was set aside, the 10% um, for the feast, there were three pilgrimage festivals to the Lord, meaning that they would travel from wherever they lived in the land of Israel to the place that the Lord put his name. It was eventually Jerusalem where that was. Verse 16 of chapter 16 tells us that all the males shall appear before the Lord. So as the males that were instructed to make their appearance before the Lord, their families traveled with them. But that appear before the Lord is literally translated, shall see the face of the Lord. So as they make their pilgrimage, they're going to see the face of the Lord. And they were told not to appear empty-handed, but every man was to bring and give as he was able, according to the blessing of the Lord their God that he had given them. So the Passover feast and unleavened bread was the first one that is talked about. And these were celebrated together. They were the celebration and commemoration of Israel's freedom from Egypt and their new commitment with God. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. So the month of Abib, which is in the spring, March or April, Exodus tells us um, in chapter 12, verse 18, we are told that specifically on the 14th day of that month that they were to celebrate this feast. The first thing they do is celebrate the Passover, remembering the night that the angel of death passed over in their land, and they had, they had killed the Passover lamb. They had taken the blood of the lamb and posted it on and painted it on their doorpost. And every house that had the blood of the lamb posted, painted on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass by and their, the son would live. So they, they would eat and offer the Passover lamb the blood of the lamb, in commemoration and remembrance of that. They were also not to eat unleavened bread for seven days, bread without yeast. And there were two reasons for that, because of the hurried nature of their exodus out of Egypt. They didn't have time to bake sourdough bread. It takes all day to bake sourdough bread, so they had to quickly throw together bread without yeast for time constraints. But it was also the type of bread that was common in Egypt, common in that day. It was staple bread that they would have eaten in Egypt. And so eating the unleavened bread is a commemoration or a remembrance of when they were in bondage to sin or to slavery in, in Egypt. So it was remembering their old days of bondage. And this week, this um, week of Passover would end with a solemn assembly, a closing ceremony where the festival would be then brought to an end. So the next festival that they were called to travel the distance to Jerusalem, or the city where the Lord would place his name, was called the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as the Feast of Harvest or the Day of First Roots. But later in the New Testament time, it was called the Feast of Pentecost, meaning 50 days, because it was 50 days from the Passover that they would return. Let's look at verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9. It says, You shall count seven weeks, Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand. Again, notice a freewill offering, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. We're going to stop there. So 50 days after Passover and unleavened bread, the people of Israel would return to Jerusalem for yet another festival. I was trying to imagine what that was like for them, traveling. I don't know how long it tax, takes to travel in, in, by foot in Israel, but I would imagine for some people it was a little bit of a distance. So they, they come to, to Jerusalem and then they have to go back home and then 50 days later they come back for yet another festival. This Feast of Weeks was celebrating the gracious provision of God in the harvest, their first harvest of the year. They were called to celebrate not only God's goodness in the first fruits of their crop, but his goodness in their redemption. Again, reminding them of their time in Egypt. And I think it is no accident that it was at this particular feast that we um, see being celebrated in the opening book of Acts. For what we see in the account of the beginning of the church is a celebration of the first fruits of God's harvesting of a people through the blood of a lamb that had just been shed for the freedom of that people. 
And don't you wonder if the whole purpose of all of these feasts was pointing to the moment when Jesus would fulfill them all? We celebrate both the Passover and the Feast of Weeks each time we gather on a Sunday morning with the people of God. Every single time, every Sunday, we are celebrating these feasts. Because what are we doing when we celebrate on, on church on Sunday? We are remembering that we are a redeemed people, that we have been brought out of slavery, that God has provided for us. And we remember and we celebrate this every single week. We remember and participate in these feasts as, feasts as we take part of communion. We take the bread and we drink of the cup and we are participating in a feast of rejoicing for what God has done to redeem his people through Jesus. And we do that as a people together in his presence before his face. The final feast celebrated in this text is the Feast of Booths. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. And we see this in Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. Let's look there. You shall keep the Feast of Booths for seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be all together joyful. This feast took place in the fall when all the produce had been gathered in. It was another week-long celebration. Started on a Sabbath, ended on the Sabbath. And it was joyful. Look at the words. You shall rejoice in this feast. Rejoice be the, before the Lord. Be all together joyful. Each one of these feasts, in reality, is a joyful, rejoicing celebration of God's provision and redemption of God's daily provision for his people. He provides for their physical needs. He provides for their spiritual needs. We have such a good and gracious God Think about it. Think about it. Embedded in the law is the command to party in his presence, rejoicing and celebrating. He is not a curmudgeon. He is a good God. And even today, as God's holy people, we are commanded to rejoice and give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Holy people are people who rejoice in the presence of God. And we can do this in all circumstances because not of the circumstances, not because things are going well necessarily for us, but we rejoice because of who God is and what he has done on our behalf what he has done in our redemption and in his provision of salvation for us, in every spiritual blessing that we have been given in the heavenly places, that the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we rejoice in the fellowship of believers that we have been called to love and in the food of the word and in the hope that we have of a future feast that is soon to come. And we see a glimpse of that feast in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Ladies, we are looking forward to yet another feast that is to come. And that picture, that moment that we are going to experience and joy together for all of eternity is what gives us hope and helps us rejoice today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we thank you for your goodness that we can see um, in your word and how you are so generous to us and how you have called us to be in your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Lord, help us to go to you for our joy. Help us to go to you for our pleasure. I pray that you would change us, that you would um, change us through this time that we spend in your word and help us to see you as good and holy and glorious. And that as we see you as such, that we would slowly by degrees progressively become just like you. In all that we say, in all that we do, in the way that we live our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.